if we have faith in the Dhamma, then we have faith that death is not a final, total separation. You wouldn't be able to see your father-in-law anymore unless you have no very special psychic powers. You may not be able to talk to him. The same for his own son, for Chandima. That's not possible, but that doesn't mean he doesn't exist. That's the very first thing that we have to bring back to mind. Because we live in a society where the default position is that people believe when you die, you stop to exist and it's just nothing. Now, this is not necessarily uh, fully consciously pronounced and expressed, no, but it's almost like the default position, what you might call you know, scientific materialism. And many people you know, have that belief, although they may have some doubts about it. That's why I always like to remember everyone, that if someone dies, if they pass away, it doesn't mean they stop existing. What falls apart is the body. But even the body doesn't fully stop existing because all the bodily elements, the earth, water, heat and wind in the Buddhist system, or the chemical elements or the neutrons, electrons, or however you want to describe it in the Western system, they also don't vanish. They just disintegrate and continue mixing again with the larger earth element wind element, in the larger wind element, water goes to water, and the heat dissipates. But what we call the mind or consciousness, this is the crucial one, isn't it? Because however important the body is to us, I think we will all agree that the mind is even more important. What sometimes people may call soul, the soul, or the heart, in a metaphorical sense, consciousness. Is soul and vinyana the same? The soul is a more Christian term from theistic religions, and we would usually not use that as a Buddhist, because soul usually implies an unchanging permanent entity, whereas consciousness or mind doesn't imply something that is totally unchanging because we all know that our mind, our consciousness is constantly changing. So it's changeable. There's a soul that usually the idea is it's something completely immutable and eternal in the same form. Whereas the mind is obviously changing but is not eliminated from dying. And it continues. And often, once a person is out of the physical body, um, they're even able to perceive or to see or to feel what their loved ones are thinking and doing. One thing I really recommend to everyone is reading about near-death experience, also known as NDE near-death experience and has become relatively common in the last decades 
as medical science has progressed and they're regularly doing the resuscitation when people die. Altogether, that's actually not very successful. Uh, I once talked to a young doctor who had just started in the hospital and was on their team. And as mostly old people die, and as she said, they get back maybe one in 50. So most of the time it doesn't work. No, but if you do thousands and thousands of these resuscitations and occasionally younger people who had an accident or something, there's also a considerable number who they can get back. So they get people back. And the amazing thing is that quite a number of those have very beautiful and amazing experiences internally, subjectively, at the time when they're clinically dead. And what they often describe is, for example, a very famous light. Many later describe that they see a beautiful light and they're in a kind of dark tunnel. They give different descriptions, and the people will always be influenced by their cultural background, by their own subjective faculty of perception. So sometimes they feel like they're falling into a well, or they're moving through a tunnel, or they're in a just dark space, and then there's often a little light. And then they're floating towards it, and the light becomes really big and beautiful. Of course, depending on their religion, they may interpret that according to their religion. The Christian may feel or perceive that this light is God or Jesus. The Hindu may perceive that this is Krishna or Shiva or whatever. The Muslim may think it's a prophet or Allah and so on. From the Buddhist perspective, you're basically encountering the mind and deeper levels in the mind. And it's very, very similar to the experience of Samadhi. In fact, those people who have had not even necessarily a full absorption Samadhi jhana, but sufficient calmness in their meditation that they see a light, they immediately notice how similar the description is. It can be very, very similar in your meditation that you get this beautiful light becoming bigger. This is why it can be a great chance for making big progress in your meditation when you die. <laughs> because so many of these people who give these amazing experiences, describe that, they actually often don't have any particular spiritual or meditative practice but they have an experience similar to samadhi simply because the body and the mind separate. The mind separates from the body, which is very difficult to do when you're alive. But in a sense, you're doing that in samadhi, that the mind absorbs in itself and kind of loses contact with the body. That's quite difficult to do. If you have tried meditation, you're probably aware of that. But in death, there's nothing you can do about it. The mind goes separate anyhow. And that gives this beautiful experience. The moment when the mind is released from this coarse physical body and its weight and its pain and its 
heaviness and so on. They, they often experience great joint rapture. Again, similar to what people experience when they go into samadhi. Fascinating similarities. But it means you know, if you occasionally in your meditation get some light a little bit and it's only flickering or it comes and goes away or it's a little bit darkish, and then you can't fully use it you know, to go into full samadhi. But just imagine if you have that much training and then at the moment of death you, know, you may go straight into samadhi. And even better, you may even develop insight and attain enlightenment in this process of time. Often the people who experience that, they describe that they can see their body lying there. And they're very relieved often when they were sick. And they were very sick and suffering and the body decaying. It's often a great sense of relief that they're out. Because the moment the mind separates, there's straight away the relief from the physical pain. They usually have actually still a body, and they have a mind-made body, or what you may call an astral body, but they may not be immediately aware of that. And they're often surprised that all the attention of loved ones and doctors is totally focused on the body from which they feel now separate and no longer much interested. And they describe their amazement. I'm here, I'm fine. And everyone is panicking about this mortal um, cover or shell which is no longer important to them. Amazing reports. One I read, there was a nurse in <clears throat> Netherlands, and they had a person coming in in their 50s, gentlemen who had a heart attack in the park. So his heart had stopped beating for quite some time when he arrived in the emergency department, and they were not very confident that they would get him back. But when he came in, the, the whole, how to say, the whole panic, this is very hectic. I'm not sure that you have seen that when they get the defibrillator and the electroshocks and the team, this is a huge commotion. And the, the, that all started in the moment he came in. And the nurse, the nurse, the tour, put in a tube and breathe, breathing apparatus and so on, and she took out his dentures because the denture is not an obstruction, yet dentures. So she took that out and then quickly put it on one of these other tables which were close you know, to the operating table, and then rolling him into the emergency. And uh, later when that guy came back and he saw her, so they could resuscitate him, he came back, he was okay. He woke up and then he saw her and he immediately said, Ah, you're that nurse. Where are my dentures? You took out my dentures and you put it onto this table and you described a few things which were on the table. The only problem is he was clinically dead. 
when all that happened, his heart wasn't beating and his brain was nothing left. No functionality. And he later described to her that he actually had this near-death experience. He could see it from the top. He could see how she came, took out the dentures and put it away. There's heaps of these stories really inspiring to read. Another one I have to apologize beforehand for using a word which is not really quite appropriate for monks, but else I can't really tell that interesting story properly, so my apologies in advance. That was an operation on a lady, you know, doctor, whole team operating. And it wasn't actually such a big thing. She wasn't really uh, much in danger of dying. But unfortunately, started bleeding a lot, which can always happen in surgery. But depending on the individual person, a certain bleeding is normal. You can't do a major operation without bleeding. But sometimes it's difficult to control for the doctors. And that was such a case. So she started bleeding a lot. And it's obviously then very difficult for the team and the operating surgeon. And he started really struggling and trying to stop all these different bleedings and so on and continuing with the operation. And then due to the bleeding, she also started losing consciousness. And then she also went off and was clinically dead which they can easily measure because all the, the measurements, uh, ECG and ECC and so on, are running anyhow. And now the doctor and getting really stressed out and they're trying to save her life, stop the bleeding, getting her back. And in, this, in the commotion and in the stress, he actually said, don't die on me, bitch. It just slipped out in, in the stress. Don't die on me, bitch. And again, uh, she was clinically dead, but after they uh, saved her and got her back, and she had woken up from anesthesia, and the doctor came to see her, and she said, you called me a bitch. <laughs> and she had actually heard that. Why she was clinically dead, according to all the instruments. And he felt very embarrassed. So one lesson we can draw from that, you know, among those dying and even among those you think are dead already, be careful what you say. And if someone passes away, it's not a good time starting fighting and haggling over the inhabitants because you know, their mind may be aware of what you're doing. Yeah, and the coma is the same. Yeah, and they may be, they may be aware of what you're saying. Even more so. I mean, once people die, you know, the, the period where you can get someone back is fairly short. But even after death, they may be aware. But in, in a coma, it's even most important. Anyone in a coma, even if the doctors are telling you, you know, that their brain is completely gone or whatever, and there's no point trying to communicate, my recommendation is always communicate. Can't go wrong. 
I can't guarantee you that they will hear you at all, but there's no harm if you say something and they don't hear you, and what is the harm? But if they hear you, it can be very valuable for you and very valuable for them, for both. There was actually another story which was really told, not just reading in a book, that was told to one of the senior monks in our tradition. It was the, I think, a Chinese lady from, from Singapore. And she was not dead, but she was only what is called, I think, brain dead. So you know, she was very sick. Can't remember the exact circumstance. And then uh, she became unconscious, coma. And uh, in the end, the doctors wanted to switch her off, as they say, you know, switching off all the machines. Because they felt the you know, brain is too damaged now and uh, they can't get her back anyhow. But of course, they have to ask the family. And there was several kids, and uh, no one was keen on taking that responsibility for switching off the machines. So they were all procrastinating, putting it from one to the other, ask the brother, ask the other daughter who was coming back from London, and it takes time, so it was procrastinating, procrastinating. And in the end, before they switched the machines off, she just came back suddenly. And it was quite okay. But more shocking was that she actually um, was aware of what's happening. She could hear people talking. And she said she was lying there, she couldn't communicate, she couldn't move at all. But she was just thinking, don't switch off, don't switch off. But there was no way, she couldn't say it, she couldn't move a finger or wink her eyelids or nothing. But she knew exactly what they were saying. So the good approach, you know, anyone who is unconscious or brain dead or whatever they tell you, to always assume that you may still get through. And talking may get through even if touch doesn't get through anymore. They may not notice when you touch them but may still hear what you're saying. Someone was just sharing, uh, one lady here in her own family, the brother uh, had some bleeding in the brain and then uh, the brain got damaged uh, from all the blood. And it was a similar situation that uh, the doctors felt there's no point trying anymore. But she managed to talk to him and hold his hand. And in the end, she asked him, can you move a little bit? And he managed to wiggle his little finger, which showed that he is not gone. And that the doctors were actually wrong in that assessment. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's amazing. So even if you are told by the so-called experts, <laughs> there's no point trying to communicate. You can always try. So once we can imagine that someone may be even aware of what is happening after they have passed away, now imagine you are in the position of Edwin, you're the one who has passed away, and then your family 
your loved ones are all coming together in your name, making the effort. Even the granddaughter is showing up and they make good karma on your behalf and shared. Can you imagine now how happy you will be feeling? Yeah. And this is part of that whole procedure, and this joy and happiness, and they're not forgotten. They're trying to help me. And this is part of the whole whole effect. That that joy and happiness and that will uplift their mind and induce a better rebirth. And you have to consider right now, and even if you are a Buddhist, you probably have at least some faith into karma and rebirth, but do you really know with absolute certainty what happens when you die? Not really, so there may be doubt, even if you have faith. There may be still doubt. However, I can't imagine that there's any doubt for Edwin now. Because once you're out of your body and you're still there and you're still aware, you obviously know. It's no longer a matter of faith. You know that death is not the end. That death is not the transition into non-existence. And you can imagine that once you know that this whole thing about rebirth and karma actually really is true from your own experience, you will feel even more happy that your family is coming together in your name and is making good karma and sharing. Because by now you know this stuff is actually working. This is why it's really important and beneficial doing so. Another simile I like to give, because you know, most people can't remember when they made the transition last life, and how did you come into this life? You probably can't remember. But you know, as we have so many immigrants in our community, including myself, I certainly know the experience of going back to Germany and being in transit in airports. And I like to give that as a simile, you know, somewhat similar. And sometimes it takes longer, particularly when they reschedule you or the flight is delayed and so on, and you get stuck. When you go to Sri Lanka, is it usually via Singapore? Or how do you go? Singapore? KL. Yeah. So you may end up being delayed Singapore is a pretty good airport, one of the best in the whole world to be delayed, but hanging out 20 hours even in Changi is not necessarily fun, isn't it? And just imagine you have to wait 20 hours now for your connecting flight, and one of these nice Singapore Airline flight attendants approaches you and says, oh, by the way, Someone has just transferred some money and may I invite you into the first class lounge. Do you like a shower? We also have little rest rooms. Do you like to stretch out in a real bed? 
How would you feel? Would that be nice? Pretty good, no? And then you go into the next flight and another flight attendant approaches you. Oh, just to inform you, I've got an upgrade. They've upgraded you to the first class suites. You know what they have there, the first class, where you have your own compartment with bed and so on? Would you like that? Not bad, no? And this is what you're doing for Edwin. That's the idea. You're giving an upgrade. Upgrading to first class, making sure that he can get into the lounge. And ideally even upgrading the ticket. Original ticket was maybe only towards South Sudan. It's maybe not such a good place to live. And then you upgrade the ticket and it goes instead to Switzerland. It's a little bit easier to live. That's the idea. So good on you for coming here and doing the upgrades for Edwin. Someone just pointing out the funny thing is you're very frightened about uh, dying and what's going to happen. But on the other end, we are never very anxious about where did we come from and how did that all work out. And I totally agree. And uh, the funny thing is getting into the human life is actually quite a frightening and difficult thing. The ones who report what they felt like after they were dead and out of the body they often feel a great relief. But uh, getting into this human world, you know, there's a reason that the newborn is usually starting you know, by screaming their head off. It's not a very pleasant experience you know, to be born. It's quite fascinating, but nevertheless, you know, the fear we have is about the dying. And the fascinating thing is, again, uh, many of those who had this near-death experience report that they basically lost you know, the fear of dying. They may be still concerned you know, of being separated from their loved ones and they obviously may still have fear and so on of pain and uh, the process of the body decaying. But this classic fear of death for many of them is gone because they have noticed you know, in their own experience after they died you know, they actually felt very good. So in a very common, when they have the near-death experience, you know, that they lose the fear of death. Often they also report in a, a meeting other loved ones who had passed away earlier and crossed the, went, went a, to the other world before. Which is quite natural. You know, if you have closed loved ones you know, arriving, at the airport, using that simile again. Uh, if you have your parents coming in from Sri Lanka, you would probably be at the airport and pick them up. Ne? Or would you expect them to make their way with the bus and you would go to the airport, isn't it? 
in a similar if any loved ones now in the position that they can do that because if in a human body you couldn't receive people crossing crossing over but if they're more in the spirits or devas now they may be in a position that they can receive them and help them and for someone like Edwin who lived to virtually a hundred I'm sure that he has many loved ones and friends who have passed before him so he may have already met quite a number of those not the ones who are in a human body because they can't really do that but not the ones who are more in a spirit existence deva it's often a good good experience for them Often they describe you know, that they're walking through this incredible, beautiful, natural landscape, you know, like rolling hills with grass, but not like the Aussie grass with the bindi, you know, with the little thorns and so on. And that, but you know, beautiful, no problems, the sun not too hot, bright, radiant, and they feel just so happy. But then the ones in the near-death experience, you know, they often uh, encounter a border, a boundary, indicated by a little river, indicated by a wall, indicated by a fence, by a line, something, some symbol. And then they get sent back. Someone comes and tells them, it's not yet your time yet, or you still have some important duty or some important job to do, and it's not yet time, you have to go back which they usually don't like, They're often disappointed, because it's just so beautiful there. And anyway, but they have to go back. And then when they come back in the, in the body, oh, <laughs> because obviously when you just died, the body is usually in very bad shape, even if they manage to save your life. And there's a huge shock in being back in this physical body which we normally delight in but they know, uh, with all the pain and the big injuries they have usually in a huge huge uh, shock and then a friend Pran knows him as well told me his, a story that fits those descriptions after he had a heart attack on the side of the road Yeah, he, he told this very factually, and he said, this is why you should believe in, in this, these things, and this is why you should believe in Devas, and I experienced it. Yeah, someone is again sharing uh, that up to about 15 years ago, they had heard about this near-death experience and so on, but uh, always felt quite skeptical about it and thought that maybe just imagination or some hallucinations in the brain or whatever. But then uh, a friend had exactly in a, one of those experiences when he had a heart attack on the side of the road and uh, they got him back, they managed to resuscitate him and he personally reported to the gentleman who's here right now um, something very similar to this uh, near-death experience of which I've been talking about. And uh, he, he felt that this person is very reliable and trustworthy. And also, you know, the way he reported it sounded very convincing and factual and uh, didn't 
be at all likely that this is made up or just a fantasy. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. That is quite amazing. We have only about 15 people here, a dozen, and two people and can report something from their own direct um, environment and people they personally know well. So I think this is a very reliable. I have to say, not everyone has it so extensive how I was describing. It's not like everyone sees a light and then everyone is meeting past relatives and everyone sees their own body. Sometimes they have only a few little aspects of that and only very few and they have a very complete experience where they have almost all of these elements. But all of these elements now are reported at least by a large number of people in, in, different, in different people. But each of the elements will be reported by many. There may be a little bit a uh, positive bias, because it's not always that it only goes upwards. But uh, it looks like uh, probably people are much more reluctant uh, to report about the uh, negative near-death experiences, but they are also the, they are also happening. And some had an experience of walking towards a city in a made out of iron or red hot and so on, and it doesn't indicate anything very good, and they were lucky that uh, they got back. But probably you know, the ones who really go to the lower realms, and they may not be able to get back. If some relative had turned into a little beautiful angel is receiving you, then they may be quite happy to tell you there's some important job you still have to do, you have to go back. But if one of the monsters and demons of hells are meeting you, they probably don't have that kindness of sending you back. <laughs> a little bit tongue-in-cheek. So um, there's also important that we consider that it's not like death will solve everything and everyone when they die will just go to beautiful heaven. We have to consider that actually quite considerable numbers of people and they may still end up in a very painful rebirth. Even if the initial experience of lightness when you're out of the physical body is there, once a real rebirth comes and if the karma is bad, now then you can also go to a bad place. The most extensive descriptions on that is usually in the Tibetan tradition. However, I don't think it's so helpful because the experience is very subjective and it's very strongly colored by traditional Tibetan background and uh, that kind of beings they meet, that kind of environment as it presents, and they probably be uh, quite dramatically different for someone from not Tibetan and very modern and uh, more Western background. So rather than trying to work it out, it's a little bit like trying to work out what you will do in your dream. 
because a statement is often described as being a little bit dreamlike, although more, uh, much more intense and super quick. But you you don't have necessarily the full awareness like right now. You may be moving around very quickly and a bit dreamlike. And it's quite difficult, even if someone tells you tonight when you dream, please do this and that. Because will you remember that in the dream and can you implement that? So the much uh, safer way is rather than trying to rely on very specific instructions how to act once you're in that situation after you're out of body and transitioning. Much better is to train yourself to always act according to Dhamma and according to what is wholesome and good and beneficial in the present moment. And if you are willing on a Saturday not to sleep in or go to the party and so on, but to come out to the monastery to meet monks and other fellow Dhamma fervors, then you're probably also in the in between. You're happy if there's a monk appearing to listen to advice there and to follow the monk. Others may be seeing the red light and following the red light, not going to a good place. So if they're already following the red lights on the weekend, they may also follow that in that transition. If you follow the white light and the Buddha and the triple gem and loving kindness and compassion and restraint and so on, and that respect to those who deserve respect, then these attitudes are ingrained. And even if you're in a more like dreamlike state, you will do the same thing. If you already now are saying, oh, what are the monks talking and precepts and blah, you reject that, you probably reject it at that time as well. Sandy. Most of the people in ICU are either unconscious or they're on ventilation. Even if they are not communicating with, communicating with the person who is coming in, we were supposed to introduce ourselves and tell our names, what we're doing, even though they're not responding to and explain the point of treatment of what we're going to do before we actually do the procedure. Again, someone is sharing uh, something very encouraging. When she studied, she was taught uh, when working in ICU that she should always introduce herself to the patient, explain her name, say hello, and uh, explain the whole treatment program, even if that person is uh, unconscious, ventilated, uh, unable to answer, and very uncertain whether they can even hear it. Uh, I didn't know that, and thanks for sharing. Uh, that is very encouraging. I'm very happy that this is now officially taught. And it's definitely you know, what uh, you would advise in terms of the teaching of the Buddha and the Dhamma. And even if they don't hear you, now maybe you have made a little bit an effort, and then they still don't hear you, but there's no harm is being done. But if they hear at least something, it will be much better for them. It can also be better for that person because you, know, you start building up a relationship when you talk. It's often very awkward when someone is very sick and you come in and then if you not, not talk, then this is just this icy 
atmosphere. Because once you start talking, uh, I'm so-and-so, and this is what we're trying to do, and I hope we can still get you really healthy again. This is good for everyone. The whole atmosphere becomes better. So thanks for sharing. Uh, second was a question. These people in ICU are usually heavily sedated under heavy medication. Uh, even so, they often report, or some of them report, that they had a kind of traumatic and post-traumatic issues because the whole experience being in ICU was quite tra traumatizing. Um, and if they pass away, whether that would influence their consciousness, both the trauma and the uh, medications. Um, but for sure, they both will influence the mind, yeah. I don't think one can, can deny that in any which way. Uh, once the consciousness or the mind separates from the body, I think then the effect of these drugs will be probably gone. But it means that they come out of a very unclear and hazy and partially tranquilized and anesthetized state and now I have to face that all. Much better is if you die in as mindful as possible and try to sustain that mindfulness because from the descriptions it's quite difficult to maintain good mindfulness in that transition anyhow. It can be quite overwhelming, like quite a wild dream. And if you start that at least with good mindfulness, they have a much better chance to have more mindfulness for that process. But if you come out of a heavily drugged state um, and then you are out of body and then maybe the drugs wear off, but everything is already happening, it will be quite difficult. But there may not be too much you can do about it because if you don't give all the drugs, then people will have an excruciating pain and that will also impact your mind. So for a very advanced practitioner, if they can handle it without drugs that diminish consciousness, like morphine and, and other painkillers. They may be doing best if they can do that, really, just, just maintaining mindfulness. I think for many people that may be very difficult and the drawback of having diminished awareness from the drugs may be better than the impact from the pain. But it's difficult to gauge that. So it's not, not an easy, easy decision. They both will impact consciousness. But if they go through a long period, as you said, even the ones who come out of ICU often have post-traumatic stress disorder. So the ones that are dying there may be even worse. And if they didn't have all this medication to keep them calm, that may, the mind may be even more desperate and have huge aversion and uh, despair and, and so on. So the question would be, you know, which one is the lesser evil or which one is causing more harm? And I, I can't uh, give any absolute guideline for that. And... We're lacking a little bit in the guidance from the Buddha because these technologies didn't exist in his time. In general, if you are very well trained in your meditation, 
minimizing drugs that impact consciousness is probably a good approach. But then if you feel you can't cope anymore and you become too desperate and your mind gets overwhelmed by the pain, then again the um, painkillers may be better. But I can't really give a clear solution on that. Yeah. So it's a good opportunity to try out if you have a non-lethal disease, but just some bad fever or some bad headache. How can we cope? And is it really necessary to take the Panadol? I think I've never taken a Panadol in my life, but I was also happy that I don't have any severe pain conditions. But when I had the Bates palsy and the treatment, and it can be quite difficult at times, dealing with the pain. And people have pain long, long term. They they make become very embittered, resentful, depressed. And if you die in an embittered, resentful, depressed state, that has a huge negative impact on the mind. So it may be better to rather have the uh, or the pain treatment and have diminished mindfulness, but you know, the mind is at least you know, reasonably bright and happy, and maybe with the support of uh, chanting and the person remembering all their good actions. You know, they have diminished mindfulness from the drugs, but at least you know, they are in a, in a confident and more happy state. But to exactly make the judgment this is quite difficult. Do you always pop a Panadol if you have any pain straight away? Or? I would recommend try occasionally. Yeah. Uh, I use the Chinese oil. Yeah. Occasionally it's good to train oneself a little bit, whether one can work and develop insight and in letting go regarding pain. I know it's not the favorite meditation object for most, <laughs> but it's also a meditation object which often can uh, lead to quite um, amazing progress. It's very intense. I have a quick question about Yes. Exactly right. And someone is just sharing, she feels Many people feel the best way of dying is that I don't even notice it. Say I'm in my sleep, I didn't know there's any problem. I go to sleep and then comes a heart attack and I'm gone, without waking up even. And many people feel this would be the ideal death I would like to have. However, as Sylvian uh, is pointing out very correctly, in Dhamma terms that is actually not necessarily very good. Because you have no time to prepare. On the other hand, the death, which uh, most people wouldn't like, having a longer period of decline and then dying and maybe being uh, awake and aware while you're even dying and having lots of pain. And many people don't like that, but uh, if you are a Dhamma practitioner, there's a huge opportunity during the period of decline to contemplate impermanence and to develop letting go. And then if you can maintain awareness right into the moment of death, you have got this huge advantage that there's already mindfulness and that you can maneuver that process much better and that you may be able to fully write that light coming up 
and attaining full samadhi and being born in Brahmaloka, or once you attain samadhi and to even go further and develop insight on uh, the impermanence, non-self, and to have a breakthrough in terms of insight meditation and become a stream enterer at the time of dying. Yeah, I totally agree. It's not necessarily good to die completely out of the blue. And there's one here on the podcast. Malika. Uh, my first-hand experience, the anesthetic, does affect Sati. Yeah, Malika just had a procedure where she had uh, anesthesia. And she's just sharing that that did affect uh, mindfulness quite a bit. One monk who had a major operation once told me that he felt it took a few months to get his mindfulness level in meditation uh, back to exactly the same level like before the operation, the anesthesia, several months he felt to have it fully back. So it may not be over, you you wake up, but uh, the effect on weakening mindfulness may go longer. But I guess it may be still better than undergoing a major procedure without anesthesia. I think few people. Can can you remember the uh, Slovakian monk we once had here, Anubal Pavomito? Big Slovakian monk who used to be an ice hockey player. He played in the uh, junior national team of Czechoslovakia, which was those days one of the top nations for ice hockey. And he was really a very kinetic person. And ice hockey is a really tough, tough sport. And everything is hard. The ice is hard, and the sticks are hard, and the puck is hard, and then they bump into each other. Very, very tough. And I remember once when we got these new boots, also for fire, he put them on and started walking them in. And he was used to that from the ice hockey boots. And he came back and he had these huge operations and everything. I looked at it and just looking at it was quite scary. And he just took it and nothing. And he went to the dentist and I think four or five wood canals. And he, he, he insisted on having them without anesthesia. And everyone in that, in that dental surgery, they were incredibly impressed about oh, these Buddhist monks. He's taking five wood canals. They're such great meditators, and they can do that all without anesthesia. And all the girls here in huge admiration about the marvelous monk. What they didn't know, do you know why he didn't take anesthesia? too afraid of the injection. (laughs) He he had such a a fear of getting an injection that he would prefer four wood canals without anesthesia to getting this little injection for the anesthetic. But they didn't know that in the dental surgery. And he left a big impact. Oh, these Buddhist monks, wow. (laughs) Maybe end on a quite funny note. (laughs) 
or give it a try. It's good to work with pain. It's a great meditation object. If you do metta or breath, you may notice you're often nodding. You may often have just fantasies. You try to do breath meditation, but in reality you're just lost in some fantasy or you're going to sleep. Both is not very likely when you do pain meditation. You're unlikely to either fall asleep. Have you ever fell, fell asleep while you, the dentist was doing a wood canal without anesthesia? Not very common, eh? Or do you think you'll be fantasizing about your next meal or the next course while you're getting the wood canal? So it's a great meditation object. Now you're right on the ball. But you need wisdom and insight. Wisdom. Some packs. Someone asking if one sits for a long time and then the natural pain comes from unchanged posture, is that good for pain meditation? Yeah, you can do that. But you have to be aware, and if you normally do anapanasati, breath meditation, and then after 45 minutes, one hour, the pain becomes very strong, it would be a switch of your meditation object. You wouldn't do anapana anymore, but you deliberately switch to pain meditation. Lungta Mahabua was writing quite a bit about that. He did that a lot. He would sit all night. He usually said that after six hours is when the real pain comes. After three hours, your whole body is in pain, he says. The whole body is just like, like burning. But uh, the pain after three hours, he says, compared to the pain after six hours, is just like comparing cats and elephants. Someone told me that apparently they have translated uh, Lungta Mabua even into Italian now. Dukkha Vedana, Mamma Mia. It's a great meditation object. Ajahn, on my travels, I met a few people who, who did this for very, very long times. And one guy, he managed to cause some nerve damage in the knee. Yes, someone is just sharing that uh, if you do this uh, sitting meditation the six hours without moving, you can cause uh, physical damage. And that is correct. I also know a monk who did uh, tissue damage with that. And, uh, and part of the tissue under his foot is, is, is dead now. Uh, so it is quite possible that uh, from sitting there for very extended periods without moving, you can actually cause a permanent harm to all kinds of parts in the body, which, however, someone like Lungta Mahabua wouldn't mind so much if the mind actually has an, a major attainment. But if you don't have any attainment uh, and the damage, and of course that's not a very, very good deal. So you have to consider carefully there. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And uh, it's not so easy to create a really very intense pain in the body without 
danger of too damage. That's one of the reasons that we feel pain is meant to protect the body from damage. So if you meditate for a long time with an extremely strong pain signal, it's not so unlikely that there's also some genuine damage. But I think for many people, they back off from pain so much earlier that this is not the biggest issue. I think one thing you can just, even just in a cold shower, I don't think that you could cause permanent damage. Most people are trying, experimenting a little bit with a cold shower, but there's already a very strong sensation. It's a nice one to experiment. How easily can you take that? Just for starters. Okay, very interesting discussion, and what enough for all the good contributions and for the sharing, and I was very impressed that we had uh, repeated confirmations from people here in their own personal experience or people they know personally. All the best. <laughs>